0: From west to east and kingdom to kingdom, you're listening to the Dis Unplugged Connecting with Walt podcast. Connecting with Walt is brought to you by Dreams Unlimited Travel, experts at helping you plan the perfect Disney vacation. Visit them on the web at www.dreamsunlimitedtravel.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this week's episode of the Dis Unplugged Connecting with Walt podcast. I am co-host Craig Williams, once again filling in for host Michael Bowling, who is still on the road to recovery right now, and... Still will probably be that for, for quite some time here, but I do have some happy news to announce, and that is that Michael is currently out of the hospital and back at home, and he's uh, he is recovering at home with the help and assistance of, of nurses, and he's able to spend time reading and doing research for connecting with Walt, as well as, of course, uh, taking some time for... Uh, television and movies and stuff that will help him heal, you know, by being entertained. So that is very, very awesome news that I was happy to hear from him because, well, no one, no one wanted to see him in the hospital right now, especially, uh, you know, not to date this episode, but it just happens to be that right now we are in the the swing of self isolation because of the coronavirus and such. So, uh, with with that in mind you know it's it's happy to see michael getting out of the hospital especially where he's at in northern california before uh, before anything gets gets too crazy here cuz you know we just just found out that the theme parks are are on their way to closing down and that's it just seems like this is about to get Uh, a lot worse so i'm happy at least that on on one front of all this so we can have great news in terms of michael's recovery and his eventual return to connecting with walt which hopefully will be you know sooner than later so uh, because i am struggling at doing this by myself oops and i apologize for that loud noise that uh, came along with it from my computer there but anyways uh where was I at with all this? So Michael is currently recovering at home. And once again, we have another history archive episode from the Dis Unplugged Disneyland edition. And we are going to go ahead and continue that series that Michael started, the 60 years of Disneyland. And we've already played a couple episodes from that. And I believe we are now on our third episode in that series in which uh, Michael discusses the opening day at Disneyland. So we talked about the idea leading up to uh, the construction of the park and through the construction, and now we are hitting on opening day, and it's a uh, it's a great episode. I know we've talked a lot about Disneyland and, and its opening day and years before on Connecting with Walt, but nothing in the depth that Michael gets into on this episode. So it, it really is a great listen, and I think a lot of people enjoy it, and Uh, You know, it's just one of many great episodes that he put together in terms of that 60 years of Disneyland series that we still have to finish and we will one day, but uh, plenty of episodes still to pull from that series so we can get you guys all caught up before we really dive into it on this show. So I'm going to go ahead and stop rambling and uh, without any further ado, let's go ahead and listen to this episode. Well, this time we're going to talk about 60 Years of Disneyland,
1: the opening day of magic and mayhem. Awesome. So now new listeners to the DisUnplugged podcast Disneyland edition might want to listen to my earlier segments, 60 um, Years of Disneyland, the beginning of an idea, and 60 Years of Disneyland, building the magic to get caught up on our story. One of all Disney's best known quotations begins with the phrase, Disneyland will never be completed. Walt Disney spoke these famous words in his opening day dedication of Disneyland, expressing his belief in the future of his new magic kingdom. That sentence held many meanings for Walt Disney and his creative team who worked with him during the previous year. Disneyland was many things in July 1955, unique, miraculous, magical, but definitely not complete on-site construction of disneyland began on july 12 1954 one year and one week before opening day being the master of cross-promotion walt disney had arranged for his new magic kingdom to debut across the united states in a televised special event this broadcast with 24 cameras three celebrity hosts, and miles of cable would be the largest television coverage ever attempted by ABC or any other network. The widely announced date for Disneyland's first day of operation was firm and fast approaching. As designs became blueprints, crews of workers labored night and day moving earth, pouring concrete, and framing structures. Plans for certain areas, such as the shops along Main Street, Frontierland's Golden Horseshoe Saloon, Sleeping Beauty Castle, and Adventureland's Rivers of the World, were developed and built fairly quickly. Areas farther out from the more spacious Frontierland and Tomorrowland remain undefined as time ran out. Some attractions and exhibits scheduled for Disneyland's opening, like The Rocket to the Moon, The 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea exhibit and the Chicken of the Sea Pirate Ship Restaurant missed the deadline and were available to guests only as interesting exteriors. On July 17, 1955, the time of planning, preparation, and construction was over. The $17 million personally raised by Walt and Roy Disney was gone, but Disneyland opened as promised. The building statistics in the opening day press kit were impressive. Two million board feet of lumber had been consumed. Despite strikes, a million square feet of asphalt had paved the streets, some of it still steaming along Main Street, USA. (laughs) (laughs) 5,000 cubic yards of concrete had been poured, and 70 times that in earth had been stacked and compressed into the berms surrounding the park that kept the outside world truly outside. But the berm was not enough to keep chaos outside of Disneyland on July seventeenth, nineteen 1955. It was a madhouse, remembers Disney construction supervisor C.V. Wood. We printed either 10 or 15,000 tickets, but people were counterfeiting the damn things. We even found a guy who had built a ladder and flopped it over the barbed wire fence back where the stables were. You could just walk up and over real easy. He was letting people in for five damn bucks a head. <laughs> <laughs> Jack,
2: oh
1: yes. Jack Linquist, former president of Disneyland, was there on opening day as a guest and said... It was a debacle. It was so overcrowded, and I think it was 105. You had tickets that said enter at 1 p.m. Well, the people that had tickets that said 8 a.m., 9 a.m., and 10 a.m. weren't leaving. They were just adding more people going in. Nobody was coming out. They didn't say if you came in at 8, you should be out by 12. They just thought people would come in, they'll do a couple of hours, and leave. They didn't. It was a madhouse cast member ron dominguez was working as a ticket taker at disneyland's main gate i was a ticket taker opening day was a hectic day the plan was to invite people at different hours so that we could spread out all of the arrivals but it didn't work out that way everyone wanted to come out early to see the stars Disney consultant Harrison Buzz Price, who a few years earlier had chosen the then-sleepy agricultural town of Anaheim as a location for Disneyland, attended opening day. I was on the bridge that led to Sleeping Beauty's castle, and it was full of people. We couldn't move, and the asphalt was sticky. I looked down and saw Frank Sinatra, and he was cursing.
2: Oh my gosh.
1: Actor Fess Parker, known in 1955 as TV's Davy Crockett, "'led the opening day parade dressed as the famous frontiersman and riding a horse. "'There were so many people I couldn't see the park,' he later explained. "'Imagineer Harriet Burns, the first woman hired by Walt Disney in a creative, "'rather than an office capacity, was there on July 17th as well. "'Oh, the crunch! Oh, my gosh! We were all assigned different places, each person at the studio.' They didn't want everyone in the same area. They thought we'd be spaced out and sort of be hosting in different areas. But it was just so crunched. They had counterfeit tickets, and there was just this mob of people, and it felt like 110 degrees. The asphalt was melting. Every woman wore heels, and my heels would sink into the asphalt. It was a miserable hot day. After Can you work. Just imagine. Yeah.
2: Can you imagine doing, I mean, I've done heels in Disneyland and it's not pleasant to begin with. And then having your feet stick, stick into the ground as you're trying to walk. Yeah. I remember, I remember seeing the holes in the asphalt for, until they uh, redid it. You could actually see the holes where the women's shoes sunk into the asphalt for years and years.
1: <laughs> now, after working all night in the 20,000 Leagues exhibit, Ken Anderson was just sitting down to relax when somebody came rushing up and reported the power was out on Mr. Toad's wild ride. Anderson rushed over to the electrical equipment box and promptly fell asleep. He doesn't remember a thing about the opening day.
2: (sighs) They were probably so busy. Yeah,
1: Yeah, they were working 24-7 leading up to the park. They had all oh, gotten, uh, they had gotten, uh, you know, like rooms near the park in those last weeks. Um, Firehouse 5 Plus 2, a Dixieland jazz band made up of Disney Studio employees and led by animator Ward Kimball, appeared at the Firehouse on Main Street for the opening ceremonies. The group made up of Harper Goff, Danny O'Guire, Clark Mallory, Monty Mountjoy, Ed Penner, and Frank Thomas later played at the dedication of Frontierland. Ward Kimball reported, Walt told us to wander around the park and play wherever there was a crowd. We were the first mobile band at Disneyland.
2: Woohoo! And they're no, so good.
1: They are. If I have one of their, ever, I have their CD.
2: I know, if anybody ever has a chance to get their CD, they should, because it's <laughs> Phenomenal.
1: Nine-year-old Bonnie Williams was an opening day guest because her church youth group was invited. She was among the first children to cross the drawbridge in a fantasy land and ride Disneyland's attractions. I remember seeing Walt, she says. He looked like a giant. I told him, I saw you on TV. The whole day was magical. I felt like a real princess. A rusty-haired 12-year-old named Tom Nab also visited Disneyland. Tom and his mother stood outside the park's entrance seeking autographs from Hollywood stars who were visiting. They spotted entertainer Danny Thomas exiting, and Tom's mother asked him for an autograph. As he signed, he asked her, have you been in the park? Upon learning she hadn't, Thomas gave her two extra free passes. Tom and his mother became invited guests of Danny Thomas. Two days later, Tom landed a job as a newsie hawking the Disneyland news on Main Street. In 1956, NAB became the park's first Tom Sawyer, and in 1971 became Walt Disney World's monorail manager. The Mouseketeers are first introduced to the public during the live broadcast of the Disneyland opening day festivities. All 24 members were featured in the inaugural Main Street Parade and were showcased with their very own musical production number. The Mickey Mouse Club would make its national television premiere on October 3, 1955. And Michael
2: would get a job when?
1: <laughs> <laughs> a few years after that. <laughs> Mouseketeer Sharon Baird remembers, On the opening day of Disneyland, we Mouseketeers were in Walt Disney's private apartment above the Main Street fire station when the gates of the park opened for the first time. I was standing next to him at the window, watching the guests come pouring through the gates. When I looked up at him, he had his hands behind his back, a grin from ear to ear. I could see a lump in his throat and a tear streaming down his cheek. He had realized his dream. I was only 12 years old at the time, so it didn't mean as much to me then. But as the years go by, that image of him becomes more and more endearing. And I've heard her talk about this story at the Walt Disney Family Museum. And um, it, it's a very moving story. Did they let them sit on the furniture? <laughs> it was different Probably. furniture. Different, different furniture, okay. <laughs> <laughs> now the furniture is at the Walt Disney Family Museum. <laughs> Homer Holland, an original cast member, remembered, Opening day, it was wonderful. I was loading jungle boats, and Bob Cummings' microphone wire kept getting wrapped around my neck. I w- I was supposed to be working on the Mark Twain, but they didn't have my uniform by opening day. Well, the Mark Twain had too many operators, and the jungle didn't have enough. So I went to the jungle for a year. There were no microphones on the boats then, and you shouted yourself hoarse with a megaphone. Mm -hmm. I didn't like to give the spiel, so they sent me to the shooting galleries for 10 years.
2: (laughs) Oh, my God. So what you're saying is the shooting galleries are the penal colony of Disneyland. It sounds
1: like it. (laughs) I made Walt Disney pay on the shooting gallery. Yep, sure did. That's the rules. No different for him than anyone else.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Payback. Payback is a a special thing.
1: (laughs) Walt wanted things perfect. He had an open mind and asked advice of the operators, saying, How can you improve? He loved kids. Disneyland's opening day party was by invitation only. But all day long guests showed up at the main gate uninvited, swearing they were friends of Walt. The guards and ticket takers were hopelessly confused. One ticket taker remembers, people, 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 we would open for 20 minutes and then close for 20 minutes. No one is sure just how many people entered Disneyland on that first day. It's estimated more than twice the maximum projected attendance of ten to 15,000 showed up, at least half of them party crashers. The worst thing that happened to us, recalled C.V. Wood, occurred during the live television show. When the program came on, it showed everybody coming underneath the railroad track and into Main Street, but no one realized the asphalt on the street was still hot. The high-heeled shoes that the women wore literally sank into the pavement. Our first ladies were trapped and had to walk right out of their shoes. After years of planning, Walt Disney's very first theme park, Disneyland, opened its gates at 2.30 p.m. on Sunday, July 17, 1955, in Anaheim, California. Television crews and television host Art Linkletter, actors and television hosts Ronald Reagan and Bob Cummings, The Mouseketeers, Thurl Ravenscroft, California Governor Goodwin J. Knight and over 28,000 guests witnessed the opening of Walt's Dream. Broadcast on ABC at 4.30 p.m., it was the biggest live telecast to date. Art Linkletter, Ronald Reagan, and Bob Cummings were selected to host the Dateline Disneyland live telecast because Walt Disney knew he would need glib, experienced hosts full of personality who could speak with spontaneity in case there were problems with the live broadcast. 90 million households tuned in for the telecast, which was close to the total of all televisions in the U.S. at that time. I think that everyone here will one day be as proud to have been at this opening as the people who were there at the dedication of the Eiffel Tower, said Bob Cummings during the telecast. In an interview, Art Linkletter remembered the Dateline Disney Line broadcast. It was just like a big panic all the time. Would the equipment be there? Would the next sequence work? There was usually no director who would give you a go because we were so scattered around. We knew the whole plot, and we had a very sketchy script, but it was a miracle that we got through it. Backstage, we had to run from one venue to another, and a lot of the buildings weren't at all finished. There were stacks of lumber all around and unfinished streets. It was a hot day, and some of the tar was sticking to people. I had to run to a location over in one of the lands, and the microphone was supposed to be placed in the back of something, and it wasn't there. I knew they were doing to going to switch to me any second, so the cameraman and I were looking for my microphone, and we found it under a pile of lumber about 30 seconds before they switched to me. Actor Ronald Reagan, who would later become President of the United States, introduced 53-year-old Walt Disney. And now Walt Disney will step forward to read The Dedication of Disneyland. Walt christened his 160-acre park with these now-famous words written to Winston Hibbler. To all who come to this happy place, welcome. Disneyland is your land. Here age relives fond memories of the past, and here youth may savor the challenge and promise of the future. Disneyland is dedicated to the ideals, the dreams, and the hard facts which have created America. America with the hope that it will be a source of joy and inspiration to all the world. The TV cameras performed well. As planned, they caught every Hollywood star. Frank Sinatra and Sammy Davis Jr. driving on Atopia, Alan Young spinning on the Fantasyland teacups, Irene Dunn fut- futilely trying to break a bottle of water across the bow of the Mark Twain in Frontierland <laughs> during its christening, Plus, Jerry Lewis, Danny Thomas, Debbie Reynolds, and Eddie Fisher.
2: Star-studded
1: event. It was. The telecast seemed to perfectly catch each miscue. At the sound of an ill-timed gunshot, Davy Crockett, played by Fess Parker, rode his horse through Bill Evans' newly planted pine forest. (laughs) <laughs> a television director gave a wrong cue to a gardener who turned on the sprinklers just as Fest Parker and his sidekick buddy Epson arrived. Still on his horse, an exasperated, soaked, and lost Fest Parker later pleaded with the Disneyland publicist, Help me get out of here before this horse kills somebody. Even Walt Disney didn't escape the spontaneity of live television coverage and was caught live on camera thinking he was off chatting casually with one of the TV crews. When Walt was taking a shortcut backstage to get to his next spot, there was a young security guard who said, you can't come through. Walt said, do you know who I am? Yes, sir, the guard replied. You're Walt Disney, but my orders are that nobody comes through. Walt told the young man, now just forget who I am, but you should know that if I don't get through here, I'm going to hit you right in the nose. (laughs) And with that, the guard stepped aside. <laughs> Disneyland borrowed character costumes for the telecast from the Ice Capades, which produced a Disney on Ice show. Those costumes were owned by the Ice Capades and were used in a touring show for most of the year. Walt Disney walked through the opening ceremony of each land, concluding with the most classically Disney land of all, Fantasyland. It was in the world of fantasy he had begun this journey with a mouse named Mickey nearly three decades earlier. As the TV cameras looked on, Walt paused near the drawbridge to Sleeping Beauty Castle and read the Fantasyland dedication. Fantasyland is dedicated to the young and the young in heart. To those who believe when you wish upon a star, your dreams do come true. He then stood up, walked over the drawbridge, and strolled through Sleeping Beauty Castle to the land he knew best. Although opening day would become known amongst the press and Disney's executives as Black Sunday, Walt knew his dream for Disneyland was no longer just a dream. On the day following Black Sunday, the general public was admitted to Disneyland for the first time. For the first 12 to 15 years, Disney officially stated Disneyland's opening day was on July 18th, including the park's, in the park's own publications. Disneyland referred to July 17th, 1955 as dedication day in one of its July 1967 press releases. Just like Black Sunday, this day would not be soon forgotten. On Monday, July 18th, crowds started to gather in line at 2 a.m., and the first person to buy a ticket and enter the park was David McPherson with admission ticket number two, as Roy O. Disney arranged a pre-purchase ticket number one. Walt Disney had an official photo taken with two children instead. Christine Vess Watkins, age five, And Michael Schwartner, age 7, in the photo of the two, it carries a caption, Walt Disney with the first two guests of Disneyland. Vess Watkins and Schwartner both received lifetime passes to Disneyland that day. And McPherson was awarded one shortly afterwards, which was later expanded to include every Disney-owned park in the world.
2: Nice. How cool is that?
1: I know. Very nice. I wonder if they could will that to their children.
2: <laughs> remember when people used to argue whether or not there were actually lifetime passes? <laughs> <laughs> I seem to remember when I first started getting into Disney in the late 80s, that people would argue back and forth. Oh, there were lifetime passes. Oh, no, there weren't. Blah, blah, blah. So there well, we go. That's settles I know of
1: at least three. Yeah. As construction supervisor C.V. Wood hurried from land to land, someone came running up to him and yelled, we've got a gas leak in Fantasyland. Oh geez! He checked it out and found gas flames coming through the asphalt in Fantasyland.
2: Oh wow! <laughs> through the Where? asphalt?
0: Uh huh. Was it was it near Mr. Toad's Wild Ride?
1: <laughs> I don't know, oh, but nice. I know that they shut down Adventureland and Frontierland as well. D- Disneyland publicists pleaded with the press not to take photos of the flames, and the photographers complied, but remained on ladders with their cameras ready to film in case Sleeping Beauty Castle blew up. Admiral Joe Fowler had the area roped off as C.V. Wood had maintenance men dig up the area to locate and repair the gas leak. Unwilling to take any chances, Wood went from place to place, building to building, carefully testing each area with lit matches. Over at the Mark Twain River... Wait,
2: wait, wait, wait. Testing areas (laughs) of gas leaks with lit matches? Yes, That's like saying incinerate my eyebrows i know right and he
1: said he did it very gingerly in one of the <laughs> reports goodness. i read
0: I just you know the things that osha would Some, get on them about go now. buy me a canary <laughs>
2: yeah <laughs> osha would over, have a heart attack
1: <laughs> over at the mark twain riverboat the operators discovered the correlation between capacity and guest behavior When the Mark Twain was opened, no one had established its full capacity. The steam engineer remembered its maiden voyage on July 18th. We just let them keep coming on board till we were close to shipping water over the lower deck. (laughs) We we figured that was enough, so we locked the gates and I started the engines full steam ahead. Things were okay until we got to the back side of Tom Sawyer Island. In those days, there was practically nothing to see. The vegetation was sparse and there were a few scenes along the riverbank. And here we had a jillion guests and reporters clamoring all over the boat trying to find something to look at. When the boat sailed by a scene of Indian tents, everyone ran to the starboard side of the boat and we started <laughs> shipping water over the side as we almost tipped over. Oh God. Then someone pointed out something on the port side and there was a stampede to the other side. The oh my boat gosh. rolled and creaked under the strain as water poured over the deck from the other side. I thought we would never get back to the dock before capsizing. The Mark Twain crew quickly set a capacity safety limit. <laughs> Th- <laughs> Things were also frantic in Disneyland's back offices. To get the payroll deposits to the bank on time, the main gate clerks would leave the ticket booth laden with fire buckets filled with all types of money and run to the office. The clerks dumped each bucket on a large table and the Disneyland treasurer would count the money. Then he would grab the cash and quickly head to the bank to cover the paychecks. Each of, each of Disneyland's realms had at least one major attraction running on opening day. At the Main Street Railroad Station, guests were offered a trip around the Magic Kingdom aboard one of two Santa Fe and Disneyland steam trains. Much of the three-foot gauge train traveled on the raised earthen berm, surrounding the park and providing arriving guests with their first glimpse of what Disneyland had to offer. Since the Magic Kingdom was developed from the central hub outward, those early excursions around the 1.5-mile perimeter exposed a great deal of open land, native brush, bare riverbanks, and unpaved access roads. As the train pulled past Adventureland, guests were told that nurseries from Santa Barbara to San Diego were depleted as Walt Disney spent $400,000 on 1,200 full-sized trees and 9,000 shrubs planted throughout the Magic Kingdom. Passengers heard of the 32,000 sacks of cement and 3.5 million board feet of lumber used to build the park, the 5 million square feet of pavement, the 300,000 cubic yards of earth which was moved, and of the 12,175 cars parked, out, parked in the lot outside. There were some magical sights along the main line. The Mark Twain riverboat could be seen along the Rivers of America, the distant King Arthur Carousel revolved in Fantasyland's courtyard, and shiny Mark I Utopia cars motored along the Tomorrowland freeways. As the trains returned to Main Street, guests could look down on Town Square with its scattering of small trees, low evergreens, and flower beds protected by foot high wire fencing. Near the firehouse was a horse drawn beacons wagon. Two ticket booths with tall conical roofs stood close to the magic tunnels below the railroad station. In Adventureland, seven motor launches carried passengers along the jungle rivers of the world. A thatched two-story boathouse overlooked the river and stood opposite the exotic native bazaar, where many collectible imports such as rubber snakes, bamboo spears, and straw hats from the far tropics were available. Wooden crates and barrels and fences formed of rough-cut upright slats decorated the departure point for the jungle boats, heading out into the recently planted jungle. Explorers in the boats were thrilled to the movement of animals partially submerged in the murky water and partly hidden in the shoulder-high foliage along the riverbanks. The farthest destination in early frontier land was the Swift's Chicken Plantation House. Only the Mark Twain and the various Frontierland wagons took pioneers deeper into the Disneyland frontier. A single block of storefronts flanked the Golden Horseshoe and were the most sophisticated structures in Frontierland. Rustic buildings across the dirt street, the entrance to the stockade and the open horse corral were made of logs. To contrast the bare earth walkways, a few grass and flower bed areas were outlined with white painted rocks set in place to the right of the mark twain landing a blacksmith cabin and some split rail fencing marked the entrance to a series of hills and berms these bordered and defined the dusty wagon trails of the conestona wagons yellowstone coaches and concord stages to the left ornamental iron fencing lined the river past an umbrella covered outdoor eating area Further along were the Indian Village and Frontierland train station. Across the river, low trees and brush covered an island, which featured waterfalls rushing into the rivers of America. Sleeping Beauty Castle, the dramatic entrance to Fantasyland, drew Main Street pedestrians into the land most prepared for the public. The castle was placed in an open, park-like setting, framed left and right by low, tapering hills. Grass salons and walkways surrounded the moat, which was defined by plain embankments and bare granite rocks. Guests crossed the drawbridge and entered a courtyard where the three original dark rides, Snow White's Adventures, Mr. Toad's Wild Ride, and Peter Pan's Flight, were running, as were the King Arthur Carousel and Mad Tea Party. A few colorful umbrellas and striped awnings provided shade. Chain-link fencing capped with scalloped white wood railings enclosed the Casey Jr. Circus train and other rides. Pastel colors and checkerboard patterns were found on the ticket booths and on the panels of fabric extending from the attraction facades. And costume cast members strolled past shops and attraction entrances decorated with lances, shields, graystone crenellations, and other medieval decor. The partially painted Captain Hook's chicken-of-the-seas pirate ship formed a backdrop to Fantasyland, the masks and rigging bare of canvas. First-day visitors to Tomorrowland walked past the World Clock, which told the exact time at any place on Earth, and the sleek TWA Moonliner rocket to get in line for a chance to ride one of the new 37 Utopia cars, This land of tomorrow predicted what America would be like with the return of Halley's Comet in 1986. Not a stylized future, but a scientifically designed projection of future technology. A futuristic look to the land was attempted with tall, narrow pyramids of metal tubing topped with globes and pennants and angular awnings of corrugated ribbons. High above, tethered siege balloons trailed colored ribbons. Flags and pennants were everywhere, and the star-shaped Court of Honor had 48 pennants, one for each flag in the Union. Beyond the walkway, the Phantom Boat Lagoon was prominent near the queue for Utopia. In the distance, Snow Mountain, also known as Holiday Hill and Disney Peak, was dressed with about two dozen small and evenly spaced pine trees. The opening of Disneyland may have captured the attention of the nation, but the nation's press was less enamored. Rather than finding Disneyland sprinkled with pixie dust, the press wrote about incomplete guest services, operational chaos, and the seemingly endless miscues that tried nearly everyone's patience. Seemingly unaware of the plumber's strike that it threatened the opening of the park, one reporter observed, there was a cunning lack of drinking fountains. Feelings won thirst for shelling out more money for soda drinks. A headline warned of The $17 million people trap that Mickey Mouse built. Still another declared, Walt's dream is a nightmare, then went on, I attended the so-called press premiere of Disneyland, a fiasco the like of which I cannot recall in 30 years of show life. To me, it felt like a giant cash register, clinking and clanging, as creatures of Disney magic came tumbling down from their lofty places in my daydreams to peddle and perish their charms with the aggressiveness of so many curbside barkers. With this harsh stroke, he transforms a beautiful dream into a blatant nightmare.
2: That sounds like some of today's modern critics.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I was thinking that. (laughs) Jack Lindquist recalled how they dealt with the negative press reports. All of us in marketing, the advertising department, the publicity department, we were all under a group called Public Relations. Eddie Meck was the first publicity manager for Disneyland, and he was an unbelievable person. He was an old Hollywood publicist and worked for RKL and 20th Century Fox and went to work for Disneyland. A wonderful man and a perfect person for Disney. Now, all the press that was there opening day wrote these horrible articles about how terrible and how awful this new thing was that Walt Disney had built. You know what a debacle it was. Eddie Meck got all those people over the next 18 months or two years to come back and see the park like it should be on a normal day, and he turned that whole thing around. Whilst reminiscing about his dear friend Walt Disney, Art Linkletter said he was a genius in his way. He was daring, and he put everything on the line for his beliefs. When he opened Disneyland, he had everything he owned in the world in there, and how many guys will do that? During August and September of 1955, a few more attractions, shops, and restaurants opened belatedly. The public responded to Disney's folly, as it had been called in the media, with increasing daily attendance. On the 52nd day of operation, Disneyland celebrated its one millionth guest, a five-year-old girl named Elsa Marquez, And by the summer of 1956, four million people had visited the Magic Kingdom. In the first 12 months of Disneyland's operation, Walt Disney had the time and the money to add attractions, finish the landscaping, and make the improvements he had intended from the beginning. We will visit Disneyland during its first year and relive all its colorful events in my next segment of 60 Years of Disneyland.
0: Well, once again, a great episode, and I look forward to hearing many more from this series. Uh, just hopefully we don't have to listen to them too much longer uh, because of Michael's recovery. I hope that it's because of something else better, like uh, Michael's traveling and we need to to pull a, a different episode, or I'm traveling, or we just have something else happening in our lives that we can't really sit down and take the time to record an episode. I hope it's for one of those better reasons, not not because of any more illnesses or anything, because we do not need that. So, I hope you enjoyed it and we will most likely be continuing on with this next week and a couple weeks after. So buckle up. But in the meantime, once again, we won't have any trivia this episode. We'll be back with that soon, uh, depending on when Michael thinks he'll be returning. Maybe again, I'll do it without him. But uh, for now, I'm just going to stick without it. So uh, Sorry, I guess is the only thing I have to say in in terms of that. But uh, it'll it'll be back soon for everyone out there who loves all the the trivia. So that's it for this episode. But I just wanted to remind people that uh, any messages you can send to Michael right now will really help uh, brighten his spirit. So you can do that by sending him an email, michael at wdwinfo.com. You can contact him on Twitter at mbowling one two one. On Facebook, Michael Bowling, the uh, the one with the connecting with Walt logo at the top. On Instagram, Michael Bowling the Diz, or uh, you can connect with both of us on Twitter at ConnectingWalt. Then, if you need to get in touch with me for anything, I'm always on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Telecluster. So if you want to also listen to more shows on the history of Walt Disney, his studio, his Imagineers and Disneyland, check out the Disneyland podcast archive for all Michael's Disney history episodes at disunplug.com. And you can also find past episodes of connecting with Walt there or on iTunes. And if you find it on iTunes, go ahead, subscribe and then leave us ratings and reviews and all that good stuff. So thank you for making us a part of your day. And remember, I only hope that we don't lose sight of one thing, that it was all started by a man, Walt Disney, and his brother Roy.